It's 12 o'clock. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. My name is Duduzi Leramela in for Jeremy Mags on this 23rd day of February. Happy Friday to you. MoneyWeb at Midday, your 30-minute information pack on the latest news headlines. Here's what you can look forward to in the next 30 minutes. The Mangawun Correctional Center, also known as G4S Correctional Facility, where convicted rapist and murderer Tabo Besta escaped in 2022, is once again in the spotlight. We'll tell you why in a few moments. And as the Finance Minister Inokotongwana delivered his budget speech on Wednesday, markets reacted positively. With the rand gaining strength against the dollar, we look at the benefits for investors in a few moments. And we ask what impact the conflict between Israel and Palestine has on the South African electorate. Does it matter to you which side the political party you want to vote for stands on? Well, we'll speak to Dr. Ibrahim Harvey, who will help us understand his argument where he says that the Democratic Alliance will not be losing its support in the Western Cape. And we look at digital payments, their proliferation on the African continent and future. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The Mangaung Correctional Center, G4S, as it's known, where convicted rapist and murderer Tabo Besta escaped in 2022, is once again in the spotlight. The Department of Correctional Services in 2023 moved to end the contract with Bloemfontein Correctional Contracts, the private company that operates the prison and in which G4S has a 20% stake. BCC went to the courts to challenge the decision to terminate their contract. Now, policing union Pop Crew is calling on the Correctional Service Department to expedite the transfer of the prison facility back to it. Richard Mamabolo speaks for Pop Crew and he joins us now for more on this. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. What is your understanding of what is stalling the transfer? Look, I think uh, we should uh, obviously start from the initial beginning. Remember that uh, it was the Tabo Besta matter which uh, uh, brought into question the monitoring and functionality of uh, what you call controllers, which are appointed by the Department of Correctional Services to ensure that uh, uh, the company, the private company, ensure well, uh, uh, well, obeys its contractual obligations. Uh, this is basically under the Correctional Services Act of. Uh, 1998, uh, wherein uh, well, uh, government and private, uh, this private company entered into an agreement. Now, this uh, escape, of course, and many other incidents that have happened before demonstrated that uh, there were no contractual uh, well, obligations uh, met. And that is why we have always from the onset said that uh, we do not agree that government should actually enter, well, uh, outsource its security uh, uh, well, uh, operators to private companies. So government is spending about one, one billion rands on an annual basis for the two prisons. And we feel it's a waste of taxpayers' money because the... Uh, Private companies, of course, are uh, more focused on profit uh, maximization as opposed to rehabilitation, which is the core mandate of the Department of Correctional Services. Mm. Now, since that, uh, since that uh, Tabo Besta method came out, it was clear that uh, uh, well, uh, the minister needed to actually take some decisions, and uh, we were happy that uh, there was a decision taken to transfer the president back to the Department of Correctional Services. Uh, Mr. Mamabulu, so, uh, to last, uh, sure, Mr. Richard, if I could yes? just join you, sir, please. What 
then is the solution, right? Because you speak of privatization of prisons not being such a good idea. There's a report that was released just this week that spoke about South African prisons that are overcrowded, that spoke about South African prisons not being centers of rehabilitation, private or public. And so what is the solution? Look, the solution is that the, the funds that are you currently used for these uh, two prisons could actually be uh, utilized to ensure that we improve the status of uh, the correctional centers that we've got across the country. We do acknowledge that there are challenges of overcrowding and understaffing, uh, and yet uh, there are plans already with the current uh, minister and uh, the national commissioner to ensure that we improve on these conditions. So, so part of these funds would actually do well in actually improving uh, what we currently have. So that is what we're proposing. But as well, I think uh, one of the important things is that uh, as and when the transfer does take place, we need to ensure that uh, all these workers who are working at Mangawung and the other prison, uh, which is in Limpopo, uh, uh, are then uh, absorbed into the Department of Correctional Services because initially when they were employed, they were also employed under the Correctional Services Act. Mr. Mamabolo, sir, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Richard Mamabolo speaks for Pop Crew. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. As the finance minister in Okodongwana was delivering his budget speech on Wednesday, markets reacted positively with the rand gaining strength against the dollar. Business has widely welcomed some of the interventions highlighted in the budget, arguing it was indeed investor-friendly. J.B. Smith, Managing Director at Sequoia Capital Management, joins us to take a look at the budget from a investor's perspective. J.B., thank you very much for your time this afternoon. What stood out in particular for you? Good afternoon, Didi. Yes, I think at, at first glance, if you look at the budget, um, you can use the, the proverbial word and say it was a bit of a boring budget. <laughs> Nothing stood out um, stood out that, that we had alarmed ourselves in terms of this budget. I think the, the one talking point, obviously, is the uh, our foreign exchange uh, reserve, that contingency re- reserve fund that's going to be tapped. So we're going to transfer around 150 billion from that um, mm. that's going to be used to to settle some of our debts, uh, which is going to help tremendously. So it's going to decrease our national debt burden by about 1.6%. But I think the one thing that, that listeners um, don't understand of this mechanism is that we are transferring an additional $100 billion to the Reserve Bank. And that is to, because remember, when you pump money into the economy, which is going to happen now, it, it might have the possibility of pushing up inflation. So the authorities need to kind of sterilize the economy and to remove that liquidity also from the economy. Otherwise, we're going to have increased money flow and money flow is going to lead to deflation, which is my damper policy going forward, i.e. our, our, our interest rate. Look, in, in general, it was a investor, investor-friendly budget in terms of financial markets. We did see our, the rent strengthening, our bond yields coming down. That's on the back of... Um, uh, national debt obviously obviously, obviously coming down and the, the, the government are going to market to borrow. And I think one or two things to highlight in this budget is that there were no inflation adjustment to the personal income tax tables. So essentially what this implies is that normally government would adjust the income tax tables by inflation. So if you earn net a bit more wage inflation uh, or increasing your wages for next year, normally your, your the tax cables is adjusted for that. So that's not going to happen this year. So what can possibly be the effect is that um, you might pay a little bit more tax. So if you've got a, a salary increase into next year, 
um, you're still going to have the same tax brackets for this year. So the government mm. essentially is not helping the consumer too much um, in, in terms of this. Okay, JB, going forward, what or, do we know <laughs> about this golden foreign exchange contingency reserve account and how exactly it will be implemented, right? What do we know about the specifics of how exactly it would work? So um, I suppose foremost they need to they need to set a, a proper policy framework uh, um, in order to implement this. And there's some um, some certain uh, principles that that needs to be taken into account. So the f- first one is that um, it shouldn't undermine the the South African Reserve Bank's policy uh, on, on on its solvency. Also, it should take into consideration that um, this position can be reversed. Because remember in um, uh, these um, reserves were built up due to a, a, a depreciation in a depreciation uh, in our currency, essentially in the rand. Mm. So it could happen that if the rand starts, the rand starts to strengthen again, that this position can reverse itself. Um, I think it's important to notice that in the in the, uh, in the, the early twenty thousand, any uh, early twenty um the government had to essentially step in and fund this reserve account when the rand strengthened. It was in a negative, so that also can happen. So any mechanism that's developed need to take into consideration that um, that that this can be res- uh, um, uh, uh, reversed. So, um, so that policy framework needs to be developed, and also it's important to understand where this money is going. So what we don't want is this to be a, a funding mechanism for expenditure for government expenditure mm. going going forward. So although it was a good budget. We need to, to, to keep a lid on government expenditure. So we are utilizing this reserve contingency, reserve settled debts, but also, unfortunately, a small bit of it is going to be used for um, for wage uh, uh, wage negotiation settlements. The education sector getting about twenty five billion um, of this uh, to settle wages. Also, the health sector is also getting about eleven billion mm. in order to settle this. So we need to keep our expenditure uh, in check. Um, otherwise, uh, we just basically kicking the can down uh, can sure. down the road. We, sure. And notably, the NHI was not included in the budget. But when you take a look at cost containment in relation to SOEs in the budget, um, what did you make of that more so when it comes to maybe ESCOM and the independent power producers? Yeah, so it is, um, something that I picked up in the, the minister's budget speech, was, which was actually... Um, I think it was quite good to see that, that he did mention that there's a couple of um, support areas they want to focus on in order to, to support economic growth, one being electricity and the other one being logistics. And in, in both scenarios, electricity and logistics, they actually specifically mentioned there should be a combination of, of uh, private investment or private sector involvement uh, in these two specific into these two specific factors. And we know that there is some conditional grants into um, uh, into Transnet and also into ESCOM. But in the case of, of Transnet is that um, they only get these conditional grants if they enter into a, a private sector private sector partnership. So, look, it's one thing saying it on paper and saying it in a speech. It's quite a different thing executing this and implementing this. So um, we're really hopeful that, that this will come to fruition and, and this, will, this will start to, to uh, start to flow through. So if we can just open up our logistical net, network, mm-hmm. that in itself is going to prop up our, our economic growth. And in anything else, we need, need to, to increase our, our economic growth. Growing at an average of 1.6% over mm-hmm. the next three years isn't sufficient. Yeah. What is the intended, unintended consequence of no growth in the country, do you perceive, JP? Well, I think if we don't 
uh, we, we can spend a whole lot of time in terms of what the negative effects of that is. I mean, if we can just look at the past couple of years and what the effect was in our economy and want to affect us on the consumer, consumer, um, consumer on the ground. So if we can't stimulate the economy, we're going to basically get in a scenario where we cannot keep, uh, and if we can't get our, keep our expenditure in check, we need to go to the market and we need to fund the revenue to fund this. So, um, and that means increased taxes, that means more burden on the, the consumer, that means borrowing more, that means increasing our net debt. Uh, um, if you stop, start increasing your net debt, now you start to fiddle with your, your, your credit ratings, the cost of credit, uh, we're talking about the rent depreciation now. So um, the long-term effects of this can be devastating for any economy. So we, we, we dearly need uh, proper policy implementation to prop up yeah. our economy. JB, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. JB Smith is the Managing Director at Sequio Capital Management. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. As the conflict in Gaza rages on, political parties here at home have taken different positions from the ANC's full-on support, taking this case all the way to the International Court of Justice, to the Democratic Alliance that has publicly distanced itself from the plight of Palestinians, disciplining party members who go against party lines. So what impact will the war in Gaza have on South African politics, more so as we head to the polls on the 29th of May? Well, Dr. Ibrahim Harvey is a political commentator, and he joins us now to take a look at this doc you argue that the democratic alliance's position will not cost it at the polls this year why no i think uh, the answer to your question is is, uh, amply demonstrated in the column you know which appeared on news 24 yesterday there there are many reasons there are many reasons but i think that uh, uh, one is only going to be able to grasp this question of of uh, how the uh, Traditional. Well, since uh, 2006, uh, there around, uh, you know, uh, the most of the what is called Cape Malay or Muslim people in Cape Town have been voting uh, DA. A little combination of reasons of what's happened to the ANC, etc. Don't forget the ANC lost the first Uhuru elections of 1994. Never before in a, in a former colonial world has as as that ever happened. That in the first Uhuru election. The oppressed and exploited uh, voted for the oppressors of uh, exploiters of over three centuries. But back to this question, um, I don't think well, when that question is, is is posed about, and it's posed sharply, you know, about is it likely that the DA stands, uh, and it's uh, been you know ambivalent, ambiguous, contradictory, etc. And you look at how they treated the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. There's complexities, but. You know, it's quite stark how different in a sense, but it's because they've had a long-standing relationship with Israel, fraternal relations, you know, even Musi Maimani went to Israel. So their leaders, uh, Alan Ziller and Alan Ziller's grandparents uh, were Jewish people. They suffered with the Holocaust. And believe me, I think that the DA stance is influenced a lot by Alan Ziller. That for another time. But... Um, 
there are deeper reasons why I said my argument was that despite despite the DA stance vis-a-vis yeah, -vis that war, that predominantly the Muslim voters and sentiment would still vote for them, I thought, because there's so much, you know, alienation from the ANC, especially the national ANC, the corruption, everything that has happened to the ANC, and I'm certain for the first time okay. they're going to lose the elections in May. All but, right, Doc, if you yeah, allow so, me to, to join you, please, when you speak of this alienation, um, what is it then that they are benefiting from the Democratic Alliance, this particular constituency? Well, the thing is, uh, the answer to your question here resides in what has happened to the DA government. Look, with all the allegations and the, the, the veracity, you see in the Zona Commission of Inquiry regarding the ANC incompetence corruption, the DA is the best run, let me tell you, municipal, uh, provincial government in the country. And though they're not totally free of, of these allegations, you cannot even begin to compare uh, what has happened to the ANC wherever they've been in, in, in power and, you know, uh, in the rest of the country, even in the in the in the metros and so on with with uh, 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 no I'm talking now about the ANC where it's been in power you cannot compare the DA government in the Western Cape really has been right there in front of you in terms of performance I mean I've been there a couple of weeks ago you know you just can't believe it is the one part of the country the row you don't hardly see any uh, potholes the robots for work. which sector of Everything the population be Dr. Harvey, you know? because as soon as you land from the airport you pass the likes of Langa and Nyanga Nyanga being one of the most dangerous townships where a German tourist died recently just by getting detoured yes. from the um what do you call it the GPS and so this stellar performance of service delivery is it for all no, no, I didn't say it. I've never do that. Is a different question. I study this area. There's no doubt. There is not just the perception. There's the reality. There's a legacy of the apartheid era, and that is, and it's shown in a lot of surveys and uh, sentiment among, amongst uh, communities that that the DA tends to favour the white former white suburbia, uh, middle class, upper middle class areas, and they tend to lack neglect the Elsies Rivers, the Manenberg and the African townships, Gugs, Langa, etc. I think it is largely true. And I'm saying in spite of that, in spite of that, if you look at, for example, take one example, and it's a key and critical example which strikes at the heart of the economic crisis. We have the highest unemployment rate in the world, the highest black youth. Now, in that regard, it's true. There's no provincial government that has done better than the, the DAS in, in Cape Town in terms of job creation. And no doubt those jobs haven't been, uh, you know, reflecting that, that bias where they've neglected to neglect black areas. A lot of those jobs that have been created are for African black people and colored uh, working class people. So I think it's the one big difference that has to be taken into account, you know, uh, and I think it it will be taken into account, including by the so-called Malay Muslim voters, who is part of the broader so-called coloured working class historically in the Cape. I okay. think uh, you know uh, it's it's going to count. It's going to count. And you know, I mean, I, I don't want to. I mean, I came back from the Cape a couple of weeks ago. I went around to people. The anti-ANC feeling is so deep. It has never been as deep as it is at the moment. And that's why I say, despite 
the DA's stance regarding the Israeli-Gaza war, I still suspect that the majority of uh, Muslim voters, Cape Malay voters, would remain with the DA because they okay, see Dr. these Harvey. deeper issues. Thank you so much, Despite the, 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 the political stance, uh, uh, you know, and fraternal relations that have existed between the DA and the state of Israel. Unfortunately, this is all the time that we can afford. Thank you very much for your contribution. This afternoon, Dr. Ibrahim Ahavi is a political commentator. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. It's 20 minutes after 12 o'clock. Remember, if you've missed any of our interviews that we've had so far, as we spoke all things from the budget to policing, as well as the situation between Israel and Gaza, as you just heard from Dr. Harvey, you can head on over to our website. That's www.moneyweb.co.za to catch up with the very latest episodes. Let's take a look at this now, the space of digital payments from Mpesa in the East African nation of Kenya to e-wallet here at home and the likes of Mkuru which um, Mukuru yes Mukuru it exists in over 20 countries the payment system on the African continent has taken shape and is ripe for growth South Africa get this is the largest sender of remittances remittances rather to other countries on the continent making the cashless digital payment system one of the most sophisticated Haley Hopwood is head of revenue at Paystack she joins us now to take a look at the future of cashless payment systems in the African continent. Haley, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Perhaps we start with um, a breakdown and a definition maybe of these words, right? So when we speak of cashless or digital payment systems, what are we talking about in essence? Yeah, so we're talking about different methods and ways to pay other than your traditional way, which is using cash. So over the counter, that could be tapping your card or tapping your mobile device. And online, it can mean using a digital wallet, which is essentially a think about your physical wallet. You have multiple different cards in that wallet. Your digital is no different. You can fund it with a multiple uh, array of different ways to pay. Um, Or you can use your credit card or debit card online as well. So there's just a, a, a many ways in which to make a transaction work in today's society. I was listening to a very interesting webinar, albeit briefly, yesterday, and they were talking about the movement of persons on the African continent, right? And it turns out that even though we may see headlines to say um, there's a number of people that have drowned on the sea while making perilous journeys, there's actually more movement within the continent than outside, which means that people will be sending remittances home. And so when we take a look at the space of remittances on the African continent, which countries are leading the pack? when it comes to digital payments. Mm, I think South Africa is still one of the most popular ways if you're looking at digital like digital payments and it's driven by mobile first. So I think we're seeing a rise on the continent with just mobile uh, devices in general and what we've found, what we're finding is one in three transactions occur via a mobile device. So if you're thinking about digital wallets in that stream, it's very convenient to load your method of payments through your mobile phone and just instantly make a payment via a digital wallet. So that adoption is much greater and faster, which is the rise that we've seen last year, which is over 20% within the South African market. Mm. What has made Mpesa so popular in Kenya? 
I think it's just the ease of use. So mm. it works in a it works in a, a non Wi-Fi environment. So you don't necessarily have to be online. You can still enable some transactions offline, um, as well as the fact that it's accessible for many. Um, I think that that's the one thing that we need to sort of take into consideration when we're thinking about you know how do we how do we how do we address all individuals rather than the few? Mm. Mokuru, it exists in a number of countries on the continent. Wherever you want to say, send money, you can head on over to Mokuru. What do you perceive as behind that, um, what, brand's popularity? Yeah, and I think it goes back to that habituation piece I was talking about before. It's convenient, um, it's mobile-first approach, and it's also secure. So once people tend to, because it's your money, mm. it, it, it's very personal, you, it's, it's uncertain. Um, so once you, you once you use something, uh, you know, more than three times and you know that it's secure, it's fast, it gets to where you're wanting it to get to, um, people sort of habituate to, to using it and feel confident um around that that certain method so we that's where we find that these types of payment methods grow very quickly because of word of mouth mobile first approach and just convenience there's convenience yes but for instance um one of these uh, right you have to physically go to um the outlet in order to make payment so as the sender right so when we speak Haley, about the future of this what if i don't want to go physically to an outlet what if i just want to open up my laptop remotely and then send money from there what are we looking at when we speak of the future of um i guess digital payments on the african continent when i'm not able to open my laptop and send money to Ghana, for instance, um, via my bank. Yeah, I think there's there's still a little bit of work that we need to do uh, on the continent to make that as seamless as what we see global trends occurring in other other areas of the world and how that adoption creates sort of that deeper market penetration. Um, but we do like there is an appetite, and I think that it is being revolutionised by consumers because that is exactly what they're wanting to do. So we're starting to see that the demand is there, and businesses really have to look at their customers and their consumers to go, okay, how do we enable that? Um, there's more complexities around the banking infrastructure mm. that, that that need to occur in order for that to make that happen. But yep. you, you're starting to see pockets of it. Um, and we're certainly in South Africa, we're starting to see it. In Kenya, we're starting, like we, we do see it, but there's still more room for growth around, you know, inter-country transfers around Africa and then abroad. Um, around the globe as well but we're slowly getting there but it's very much a it's it's a journey mm-hmm. you speak of uh, banking infrastructure and south africa is the mo- has got the most banked uh, clients if you will simply because of our infrastructure which is said to be among the best in the world right and can hold its own against first world countries if you will but this space of digital payments when you look at the rest of the continent where the banking infrastructure is not where it needs to be as yet right what threat or opportunity does it pose when people are like well why do I need to go to a bank because um, Haley can simply send me an e-wallet or she couldn't go to Mukuru and send me a number and I go to my local outlet and take out the money. 
Mm. Yeah, we do. We do see that um, starting to become a trend more and more, and certainly around the globe, it's it's something that's that's ripe. Where it's 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 like a closed loop infrastructure. Where if you're staying within that network of whether it's a service, whether it's a product or whether it's banking infrastructure, um, the payment actually doesn't leave that ecosystem. So mm. you see wallets that are expanding out to pers- you know P2P transfers and then you know P2C. So you do start to see this infrastructure being led through technology um, rather than banking infrastructure where you can enable those types of transaction in a closed loop environment, but you have many different closed loop environments, um, but it also creates loyalty programs and other things mm. that can stem off um, from that as well. So rather than yeah, just talking about it from a bank to bank, how do you make a, a payment? We're starting to see diversifications where businesses themselves are going, actually, I think I could do this differently. Mm. Speaking of diversification, Haley, I'm so curious because you can't speak about education, you can't speak about health, you can't even speak about bread without mentioning artificial intelligence, right? So AI being the word of the day. Um, what do you perceive or rather maybe you can help us understand how that would work, whether there's examples that we are seeing already, AI in the space of digital payments? We are. It's very early days. And I think the the thing is that, and it's one thing to consider that the technology can get us there really quickly, but mm-hmm. humans need time to adopt for this. But the, the likes of things that I think we'll see firstly is, you know, book me a 10-day holiday to Turkey. Um, I want adventure. I want hot air ballooning and I want direct flights. Um, AI can actually write you that itinerary. It can actually find you those flights like using all of their infrastructure and it can find you a you know hot air ballooning or you know whatever adventure that you're looking for. If you're wanting to proceed, the next natural thing is click here to pay. So not only do you like is it basically orchestrating your whole holiday based on whatever your family or your individual requirements are. It can actually find those flights through an airline, find accommodation, find adventure travel. And then the last leg is how do I make that pay? And then that payment, the the infrastructure of that payment is quite complex because you're paying an airline, you're paying a hotel, you're paying adventure, you, you know, you're hiring a car, all of those sorts of things. But I think with AI, that's that's kind of like one example of being travel is is what you could expect to see. Hmm. Very fascinating, Haley. Thank you very much for your contribution this afternoon. Haley Hopwood is head of revenue at Paystack. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Okay, before we go, um, let's uh, just wrap it up with this. On today's MoneyWeb at Midday poll, we want to know, and we're asking you, if you have gone completely digital for your payments on the back of our conversation with Haley Hopwood on your payments, is it easier or cumbersome to simply do a digital transaction? You can share with us, vote on our LinkedIn and X pages. Results will be out on the show on Monday. You can vote on MoneyWeb's X and LinkedIn pages and Jeremy Maggs will reveal those results. Yes, he's back with you on Monday and thank you very much for choosing us this week. Have yourselves a magic weekend. I'm Tutuzile Ramela Vahaychu. Bulakio.